come on in. We're about to get started. Um, so we're talking about how to plant a, a life-giving church uh, on the West Coast. And uh, raise your hand if you're from the West Coast. Okay. The West Coast is the best coast. Hey, um, so thanks for being here. And uh, in a minute, you're here from Aaron. Uh, and uh, Aaron Jane, is uh, he's been here uh Planted Coastline Church, what, eight years ago, he said? And uh, God's doing phenomenal things through him. And we're excited to hear from him because he's done it. Uh, I, I've only been doing this for a year, so I've, uh, we've, we're like, we've been in the don't give up stage. Don't give up, don't give up. Uh, my wife, Stacy and I, we planted Active Church in San Luis Obispo, California, just uh, last year. So we just turned one year, and uh, we had... An amazing launch, 417 people, come on, right? And then uh, about six weeks later, there was 168 people coming to church. And I I looked at my my wife and I said, man, I don't know. How's this going to look? Yeah. Yeah, and then it just kind of, but then it grew. And it's been growing ever since. Uh, We just broke the 500 mark at our one-year celebration. So God's doing great things. Um, But man, it's been a lot. It's been different. And when I talk to guys from the southeast and I talk to guys like, Aaron Burt from Radiant Tampa, and I'm like, hey, he's one of my overseers. I'm like, hey, what do you think I should do? And, and there's certain things that work. Yeah. There's certain principles that work everywhere. And we all know that. And there's certain things that uh, just don't work the same in California. And um, I just hope that we could all kind of lean in a little bit. And maybe even the Q&A time, there's going to be a lot of time to Q&A. I feel like we're just going to learn from what God is doing throughout all of us. But really, I think Aaron's going to shed some light on some really great principles and some things that helped him in his journey. So give it up for Aaron J, guys. I don't know about you, but understanding California and the West Coast and especially beach communities, because we're in a beach community, for you to be at 500 in a year is supernatural. That is unbelievable. So I think we need to hear a little bit more from you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my message shorter because I want, I want you to come up at the end and talk a little bit about what you think it was. Because, you know, we, we have a lot of church planters, especially in our community. Since I've been there in eight years, we've had at least 10 church planters shut down because they cannot survive. Because planting in a beach community on the coast is one of the toughest things you can possibly do. And so I want to figure out, like, what did you do? Because that's much more remarkable than our story. Uh, that, that really is inspiring and incredible to see what you're doing already. Um, so I want to hear more about it. Um, uh, to give you a little context, we were a replant. Um, we took a dying church and shut it down and replanted what we have today. Um, we started, uh, when, we, when we started the replant process, we had about 80 people. Uh, we only have half of those people still in the church today because, you know, they basically gave me the church and asked me to kind of redo everything, and, and they wanted all the change, and then when they saw change, they didn't like it, and they left, and then it started a couple years, a very painful season where it did not grow at all, and it was challenging. And one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, to... to to give some context about church growth, I think what God often does is he works in us, the leader, before he works in the church. Because at the end of the day, I, love, I don't know who said it today, like we, we can't determine the harvest. We can just determine how hard we work and, and are we developing ourselves to be the best. And we've got to be content with whatever our lot in life is. Uh, the Bible's very clear that God is not fair. 
and I thank God he's not fair because honestly, if I got what I deserved, I'd be going to hell. And so God is not fair um, with us. And that's also that's also based on our talents and abilities. Like we all think we're going to be, you know, the next Stephen Furtick when we start or whoever it is now. I don't even know who the who the new one is now. Jeremy Foster. He's a he's a, he's a great guy. I love him with all my heart. But it's like three years. He's having 20,000 people at Easter. So we all go get into it thinking, OK, that's going to be me. I know who I am. And then, you know, two years in, and it's like 100 people, and I'm like, I suck. Like, I am not at all what I thought I was. See, I was the smartest person in the world when I was an associate pastor. I was at the Dream Center as one of the founders for, you know, 17 years with Matthew Barnett. We started, me and him went to college together. We dropped out and went to start the Dream Center. And, you know, everything I did was amazing under that covering. And then when I got out on my own and nothing grew... For the first time in my life, I had to actually depend on God. I'd actually pray. I never had to pray before. I mean, I prayed, but I didn't have to pray, if, right. if you know what I mean. Like, like, it wasn't something that I had to depend on because everything I did worked whether I prayed or didn't pray. Now I'm in a situation where nothing I'm doing is working, and I really had to pray and seek God. And so I think the first part of my journey was God working on me. And that's, that's what I've learned more than anything is, is God either touches it or he doesn't. You know, we're going to do our best. We're going to get better as leaders. So I don't want you at all to think what I'm giving you is the answer. It may not be anywhere close to the answer. I think oftentimes the struggle we have at conferences is we put the guy on stage who got lucky. And he really doesn't even know how he got lucky. But he has to get on stage now and tell everybody how he got lucky. And so he comes up with a list of principles to teach you. And it may have nothing to do with why his church actually grew. So I want to start by saying I am under no, like presumption that this is why we grew. I'm going to give you some ideas on how we did it different than what I saw. Pastor Chris Hodges is my pastor and, and has, has really you know, spent a lot of time pouring into me and training me and developing me and, and, and working with me. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about, because their Highlands model is really the ARC model. You know, it's what we teach in all of our ARC training is, is basically the Highlands way of doing things. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we had to do differently, uh, taking that model, because we basically are a Highlands campus on the West Coast. We just had to adjust some things. Now, when it comes to culture, um, Culture across America is not as different as it used to be because of social media, because of technology. Teenagers today, they're pretty much the same wherever you go now because they're all connected on Fortnite and technology and Instagram and everything else. Like my son is playing Fortnite with friends in Sweden and Spain and Germany and, and Mexico and all over America. And, and they're all the same now. It's like they're doing the same dances. They're dressing the same. They're acting the same. They, they have the same you know, desires. They all want to be famous YouTubers. Um, that's, that's like all, all of our kids now. And so culture is not as drastically different uh, our assumptions of it. Now, there are differences as far as uh, pockets and communities. Like in a beach community, people's lifestyle is going to be different, and that's going to affect the way you pastor people. Now, the culture is fairly the same because the teenagers are still the same. It's their lifestyle that becomes different. So we have to think through lifestyle a little bit more than culture. Uh, and, and then the other difference I've seen is economic cultures are different. I pastored in the inner city for 17 years. Now I'm in one of the wealthiest cities in America. There's big differences in how you pastor wealthy people to how you pastor 
you know, people in a low economic poverty, you know, situation. And so that's some of the, the relearning I had to do. And, and the biggest principle in, in adjusting to the lifestyle of your community and adjusting to the culture of the community is in your mentality and mindset. So what I've had to do is I have to go into it every week because I get really frustrated with our people because they're spoiled, they're high maintenance, they're demanding, they're very wealthy, they're very affluent, they want things a certain way, they, they have a very consumeristic mindset when they come to church, uh, puts a lot of pressure on you as a leader to be perfect and always having to outdo yourself week after week after week, but then in such a way that doesn't offend them. And so that there's, there's all these unspoken rules in dealing with a wealthy community. So I got to constantly remind myself I'm in Africa. I'm in Africa. I'm a missionary in Africa. That's what I'm doing is I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary in Cambodia. I'm a missionary in India. What do I mean? If I was in Africa, obviously in a village in Africa, they have customs, cultures, and lifestyles that are going to be very different and very uncomfortable for me growing up in America. Now, let me ask you a question. If I was a missionary there, would I be mad at them and frustrated at them because of their customs? As a missionary in Africa, as a foreigner, would I be frustrated with them? No. I would adapt as a missionary because this is my calling. The problem with being an American pastoring in America is I grew up in a certain generation And I have certain ideas of the way Americans should behave and the way Christians should act and the way people should do things. The culture we live in today has shifted and changed. So I can get really frustrated with my people because they're not acting the way I want them to act. Or I can realize I'm in Africa. I'm a missionary. I have to find a way to adapt to pastor these people. I can't just expect them to be what I want them to be because half of what I want them to be isn't isn't what a disciple is. It's what I think an American Christian should be. So I've had to unlearn a lot of thinking and really tell myself I'm a missionary in Africa. I'm a missionary in Africa. How do I adapt to this culture without getting offended, without letting it rub me the wrong way because they're not behaving the way I think they should behave? And how do I pastor them to where Jesus wants them to be? So I just want to set that as a foundation as we go through some of this stuff. I just have kind of five ideas that I want to share with you um, that I've seen as kind of some of the nuances that we've seen on the West Coast. First is I've had to learn how to under-promise and over-deliver. And this is not just West Coast, but it's more of a millennial culture and a younger generation culture. The generation we're living in less and less likes superlatives. You know, so if I get up on the weekend or my youth pastor gets up on the weekend and he's promoting a men's event or a family night or or a different event, he says, man, I want every man in our church to be there. This is going to be the greatest night of your life. It's going to be awesome. You don't want to miss it. It's going to kill me. And I typically will have to sit him down afterwards and ask him the question. Let me ask you, is this is this really going to be the greatest night of these men's life? Like if they had tickets to the Super Bowl, you're telling me this would be better than that experience. Like there is nothing that they will ever do in their entire life that is going to be better than being at our church this Friday night. Then why are you telling them that? So what I've realized is the less I sell something, the more people get engaged, the more people want to be a part of it. Um, One of my overseers, he just did this and it exploded in their church. He he just they changed one of their services. I was just talking about it uh, with you, David. Um, 
And I'm actually toying with this idea. In our world of over-program, you know, we have five services, heavily over-program. For those of us that are spirit-filled, it's, it, we feel constrained a little bit because it's not church the way we, you know, like we used to go, two, two and a half hours, and, and no big deal at all. Now, I obviously do not want to go two and a half hours. I, I, I get way bored with that. But I do want a little bit more freedom than the program, having to get everything right for the camera, have to give everything right for the next service, the turnaround. And so what they're starting to do is on their last service, they're making it more free-spirited in the sense that, you know, there'll be a little bit different. There'll be differences in the worship. There'll be a little bit more free flow at different points. Not super long. Uh, during the message, you can walk down in the audience a little bit more and just ask questions or stop and interview someone. Things you can't do when you're recording for the next service or for a campus. So just more free flow. And so what they did to sell it to their church is they just got them and said, look, I, I don't, we don't even know if this is going to work. It's probably not going to be that great. Um, we're going to try it and see. It's now like the biggest service that they have. So what I've learned is the more understated you are in communicating, the more effective it is in today's culture. And I've really learned that, especially in an affluent community. Uh, and, and I love what Jason said today is, is dress where you want to be or dress like you want to reach. And that's what Pastor Chris has taught me for years. Like in my community, we have people who want to make millions of dollars and wear flip-flops to work. Now, understanding that, if I show up in skinny jeans with poles and stuff, I'm going to lose half my people. Because that's not them. These are very affluent, very wealthy. It's a surfer culture. It's a beach culture. It's, it's vans and board shorts and flip-flops and, and plain T-shirts. And so I've had to learn to, you know, coming from Los Angeles, I've had to learn to even change the way I dress to reach the people that I want to reach. Now, I can dress... In a, in a kind of a niche demographic, like, like how, if you understand hotels, there's boutique hotels, and then there's Hilton, and there's Marriott, and, and there's hotels that everyone can stay at. So you have to ask yourself as a pastor, are you dressing for a boutique group of people, or are you dressing for like a mainstream Hilton or a mainstream Marriott? Because you are the billboard of the church every weekend when you stand up, and so the way you dress especially on the West Coast has, because how many know you come to our conference, especially if you go to the ARC, you know, in the other one, it's like there is like a fashion code now in ARC that you have to hit if you're going to feel like a pastor, like you feel like a failure if you don't have the right fashion code, you know, and, and at the end of the day, no one else in your community dresses like that. But, you know, it's like, you know, but at our conference, you got to look a certain way if you want to make sure everyone knows you're a pastor. And I'm sorry, I had to say it, but what Pastor Chris really liberated me is I realized he didn't follow the art fashion code. Like, if you know, Pastor Chris, he's just he's just who he is, but he's also very intentional. And I asked him one day, I said, why do you dress the way you dress? I was like, you don't dress like anyone else on the lead team. He said, I'm dressing like the people I want to reach in my community. And, you know, they're now the second largest church, over 60,000 people on a regular week, and they're doing pretty well. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why, but part of it is the way he carries himself and presents himself. He presents himself as somebody who could pastor many different groups of people. And so you can pastor a boutique community or you can present yourself as someone. Because what I've learned in, in a lot of our communities is they want a man of God. They don't want, you know, just somebody who's really cool and flashy and hip. They want, them, they want somebody that they feel meets with God. They don't care what you look like. 
if they feel like you meet with God and they feel like, like, remember the disciples, Jesus said, why do you follow me? Why are you staying with me? Because you have the words of life. Not because you're like the most fashionable and you're the coolest and you're the best leader. You have the words of life. You'll have to remember that because, again, so much of church growth is the X factor of the senior pastor. And you have to ask yourself, you have to be intentional about everything. Is is my appearance communicating what I want to communicate? Is my words communicating what I want to communicate? Um, That's just one of the things is, is really making sure that. That you undersell and overdeliver, and that's with the way you dress, that's the way you speak, it's the way you communicate, it's every aspect of it. And I think that's huge on the West Coast, but it's becoming more and more important across America with the millennial generation. They're just so overprogrammed and overhyped and over everything that they just want something a little bit more simple. And at the end of the day, everybody wants a man of God. Everybody wants somebody that they know has heard from God. And is giving them the words of life. Yeah. So, so you can't ever lose that. Your, your relationship with God is number one. And, and people need to know that you've been with God. That you've met with God. That you're not just coming up with the... You know, you can preach other people's sermons as long as you've met with God over it. You know, I do. Like Pastor Chris told me, my first five years, don't preach any original sermons because you're just not that good. And you're having to do multiple roles in your church right now. You don't have the time to put 20, 25 hours into study and prep to give the people what they really need. So preach someone else's sermon. And, you know, as Rick Warren always says, if my bullet fits your gun, shoot it. Uh, You know, uh, my other favorite Rick Warren one is he says, you know, this pastor came to me and said, well, I'll be original or I'll be nothing. And Rick said, congratulations, you've accomplished both. And <laughs> just the truth. Second thing, uh, and, and these are kind of blending into each other, is humility. The senior leader has to come across. The, the, we got to get rid of the man of God culture in today's world. It doesn't work anymore. The, the, the. You know, you have to come across very, very humble on the West Coast. Uh, People need to feel humility. They need to know that you're one of them, that you're not. You've got to carry yourself like you've been with God and they will respect you. But they need to respect you because of the spirit in you and the authority in you, not because of the way you treat yourself. And I hope that makes sense because there's a lot of us that we want. See, I came from Los Angeles where it was heavy man of God culture. Where just you were a pastor, and in that community, if you were a pastor, even unsaved people had a certain level of respect for you. I grew up in Texas, same thing in Texas. You know, people just had this inerrant respect for you if you're a pastor. In my community, if you're a pastor, they feel sorry for you because they think it's a vow of poverty. They have no concept of what ministry is in the world today, how corporate it's become and how professional it's become, that they almost look down on you. Like, we got people in my church who have more employees than we have members. And, you know, we're running 1,100, 1200 people now in an eight-year period, but they've got more employees in their company working for them on payroll than we have sitting in our church every week. So they're not impressed. But what grabs their heart is humility. So the more you can make fun of yourself and self-deprecate yourself and and like the last thing you want to do is have, you know, your name on a parking spot. I mean, that like that would kill me. Like I would lose people very, very quickly if I, you know, created any of that. And just the way you carry yourself. You know, like I learned from 
the, the, my pastor who led me to Christ, I have two great pastors in my life, Tommy Barnett, who led me to Christ and, you know, still kind of my spiritual father. Uh, and then Pastor Chris, but what I learned from Pastor Tommy is like he never, ever, ever would drive, you know, a Mercedes. And he'd been given three Mercedes from church members that just wanted to bless, very wealthy church members wanted to bless them. And he would give them away because he's like, I can't as much as it like it's probably less than the car he drove because they were used and older. But he could not do it because of image. And you have to think about that, especially with social media and YouTube. Someone gets a video of you. Uh, Again, one of my other favorite Rick Warren stories is uh, uh, he was preaching on the East Coast for a very, you know, large, very hip, very current church. And they were putting him up at the big Ritz Carlton in town. And the driver was driving into the Ritz Carlton. He said, you know what? You know, when I travel, I'm just much more comfortable in the Hampton Inn. And, and, I, and I know this to be true because this executive pastor is a very close friend of mine from the Dream Center days. And he said, I'm just more comfortable in the Hampton Inn. Can, can you move me to the Hampton Inn? And you think about it, it's a genius. Because imagine one paparazzi getting a photo of Rick Warren saying at the Ritz-Carlton what that would do to his reputation. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. But you have to look at the season you're in, the level of influence you have... And you have to personally be humble, but you also have to make sure your image is humble. You have to, because we live in an Instagram world where you've got to make sure, like, there's a lot of things that I do intentionally to keep my image humble. And, and I try to stay humble. Like, and I have people in my life that check me on it to make sure I'm living humble, but I have to intentionally present myself as humble. And that wins because once once my people believe that I'm humble and they believe that I've met with God, they become incredibly loyal to me and, and they follow me and, and they really are becoming amazing church people. But I think it's the humility that you live with and you walk with and you carry and just that intentional uh, financial transparency is huge, especially here on the West Coast. But, you know, with millennials, financial transparency is huge. And one of the things we immediately began to do is a full audit on our church every year, uh, not just a financial review, but an audit. And we put it on our website. And when it goes on our website, I make an announcement on Sunday. Hey, that our audit's done. It's on the website. If anyone wants to take a look, take a look. We have nothing to hide. We just want to be very transparent with you. And I'm telling you, the way we've handled finances, uh, we have people come to our church. Uh, and, and there's things that I do that God spoke to me. So I don't put this on anyone else. But one of the things that I really felt God spoke to me in my community is get rid of the offering. So we don't do offerings in our services. I don't even talk about it during the service. Like you can come to our church for months and never one time hear how to give, where to give, or what to give. And our giving has just gone up and up and up every single month. So it's, it's never gone down and we've never been in trouble financially. Part of it is because I do teach on tithing. I, I do the Robert Morris Blessed Life series usually every 18 months and I'll do it for six weeks. And so I'll teach on tithing hard, but I have the ability to do it because I haven't talked about money for nine months or, or 10 months. And they've been in church and we're not asking them for money. We don't you know, do an offering. So I would say that works well in a fluent community. When people don't live week to week. So again, I want you to temper what I'm saying. Don't, don't, don't just say, you know, this is what we have to do because he's doing it. It may be a disaster for you. You have to know your community. In a very affluent community, when people don't live week to week, our people, don't, most of them don't even live month to month. A lot of them live year to year. Like they have, a, they have an annual budget that they set for their family that they live by. 
So once they understand tithing, they write it into their family budget, and, and it's like clockwork. And so it's made my life very easy. But it's also one of the things that's made our church very attractive is they know they can invite their friends and they're not going to be asked for money. They're not going to be, you know, that's not going to be a factor in their life. So having that financial accountability, financial transparency is huge. Making sure like in our growth track classes, we teach people all of that. Um, Clear vision manifested into system. That's that's number four. If you are writing down the points, Um, a lot of people can't articulate their vision. And the vision they can articulate doesn't make sense as a system. It doesn't, it, like, you know, we want to reach our city. Okay, well, that's a great vision, but how do you articulate it in a way that puts legs to it, that really makes it actionable, that delivers something? Because, a, a, you know, a, a vision should deliver, what, the vision is, is the picture of where you want to go. The system is what you do to deliver it. The vision has to be articulated in a way that it fits into a system. Um, so let me give you an example because I know that's, a, that's very heady and doesn't make a whole lot of sense at right now. The vision of our church is simply, and you've heard, if you've been around ARC or around Church of the Highlands or around any number of churches, you've heard this over and over and over again. But our vision is this. Know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. Well, people are like, well, that's not a vision statement, but that's who we are. That's what we do. And that's this is where we want to go. Where do we want to go? We want to know God. We want to find freedom. We want to discover purpose. We want to make a difference. What am I communicating? Our vision isn't for us. It's for you. That's huge in today's culture. Like I'm not using you to build something for me. I'm using me to build something for you. That comes across loud and and that makes people want to be a part of what you're doing when they realize you're not using them, that you're actually helping them. You're serving them. You've actually established a vision that is all about them. So the vision is that we want to be this great church of influence and do this and that and the other. And we need you to help us get there. It's now. No, no. Our vision is we want you to know God. We want you to deal with your yesterdays and, and the past and find freedom. We want you to know why God created you and put you on planet Earth. And then we want to empower you to make a difference because that's going to be the happiest way you'll ever live your life. It changes people because they're like, that, you know, that's not, I've never heard anything like that. I'm telling you, like we know the know God, find freedom because of Church of the Highlands. The people in your city have never heard that before. And when they hear a vision clear, articulate uh, that that fits into it and when you can say okay here's how we do this 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 people like all right i'm in i'm in i have people go through the growth track all the time and they hear that they're like i'm in i've never heard this in a church before it's shocking how many people come to me and say i've never heard that in a church i've never heard somebody articulate the vision in such a way that i can grab hold of it i can be a part of it I, i can do that so let's talk about that. No God is the weekend service. If you're new to our model, uh, no God is salvation. It's evangelism. It's the weekend service. The most effective outreach we do every single week is our weekend service. Like we could do outreaches. They're never going to build disciples the way our weekend will build disciples. The, the, we will get more people saved. More people take their first step with Jesus. More people begin the journey through the weekend, then any we could do block parties, we could do you know carnivals, we could do all sorts of things, 
And they'll draw a crowd, but they won't build the church the way you think they're building the church. And they burn out your team. They exhaust your team because you're, you're working. So people say, well, don't you do outreaches? We say, yeah, we do 52 a year. We do more outreaches than outreach churches because we do one outreach to our community every single weekend. Every weekend we outreach to our community. It's evangelism to our community. And so we design the service for the lost. Now we communicate for everybody. So the people are fed. We teach the Bible very clearly. Uh, One of the things I have, um, you have to find your own style and rhythm as a speaker that that works best for you. Uh, In our community, I've I've evolved a lot, you know, because coming from the Dream Center, it's more of the conference style speaking, very inspirational. What I realized in our community, people don't need to be inspired. The fact that they live there means they're inspired. You can't afford to live there if you're not inspired. So they don't need to be inspired. They need to know how the Bible works because their lives are falling apart and their marriages are falling apart and their kids are falling apart. And they've got all the money in the world, but they can't figure out why nothing's working. It's because they haven't figured out that everything is spiritual. And until you fix the spiritual, nothing else in your life will ever work. So they need the Bible taught. And so I've had to become a Bible teacher. I've had to evolve my style a lot. And, and we do the message notes just like you know, Church of the Highlands does. You can download them from their website or our website. And it is one of the most effective things we do for brand new people. People think the message notes are for your experienced believers who want to come and learn. They're actually for the first-time guests. Because what they do for the first-time guests is make that person feel at home instantly. Like, I've been to college. I know how to do this. This makes me feel at ease. And I'm telling you, it's one of the most, it's one of the best things we do for first time guests. And it's good for me because it makes me stay on track because I can't kind of go wherever I want to go because if people don't get those blanks, they get very OCD and they find me afterwards. Like, you need to give me the blank. Like, I can't live the rest of this week if I don't know what the blank is. And so it makes me stay on track. So one of the things we do is we don't do church business on the weekend. If it doesn't apply to everyone, we don't do it. It's like, you know, if you don't have kids, you could care less about somebody else's kids. So why are we, you know, so it's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I've basically told our team this year, we're not doing baby dedications anymore on stage because it's like, if it doesn't apply to everyone, it's like their marriage is falling apart. They don't care about someone else's kids. They don't even care about their kids right now. They're just like dying and drowning. And so they don't want to hear about who just got fired and who just got hired and what's happening here. So, so we just realized we don't do church business on the weekend anymore because there's too many visitors. There's too many guests. There's too many lost people. And so think through what you allow to happen on the weekend. 10, 15 years ago, we did church business on Sunday. That's just the way churches operated because churches were church people. It's not the same anymore. So you really need to think through your audience and what you allow on the stage on the weekend versus what you move to other venues and arenas. And always think every weekend there's people whose lives are falling apart. What do they need? And how is this going to impact them? How is this going to help them? And if it doesn't help them, then ask yourself, can I do it somewhere else? Can we move this somewhere else? Because they're, they're just hanging on by threads. They need the worship. They need the word. They need prayer. Like anything outside of that is just like, you know, they're, you're losing them. You're losing them. Uh, find freedom in small groups. Uh, there, there's no, uh, it's the, again, uh, let me just make the statement. What is the best system for your church? The one that works. Not mine. The one that works is the best one. So if you don't have a better one, consider these. Find freedom in small groups. The way people deal with their yesterdays is relationship. The way we say it, it's God's job to forgive you, but God's job is not to stop you from doing it again. 
I lived as a closet addict for years um, in the ministry, dealing with severe like porn addiction and sex addiction for years and years and years and years. My problem was I went to God every day, like crying out, begging God to help. And God was forgiving me, but he, he wasn't stopping me. I was wanting God to stop me. It was because I got the model wrong. The Bible's very clear. It's when we confess to one another that we get freedom and we get healed. Well, I didn't have any relationships in my life that I can confess to. And so that's why we're so passionate about small groups. It's not because people need to be. Small groups isn't as much about discipleship as much as it about finding the right relationships where they can get honest. And they can take the mask off and they can let people into their life. And so it's learning how to do small groups in a way that works for you. For us, we tried free market. It didn't work so well. We just moved over to a sermon-based model uh, because for the majority of people who are coming into our church do not have church background or church culture in them. And if I give them like a catalog with a bunch of options, they feel overwhelmed and they don't know what to do. And so if I give them one option, then it's easy. Okay, I'll do that. Like, because that's, that's all they're telling me to do. I'll do that. Like, like, I'm just hungry for Jesus right now and I need to know what to do. Do that. And it really has made a difference. So we tell people we're In-N-Out Burger. Um, if you've ever been to an In-N-Out Burger, you know there's three things on the menu board. We basically have three small groups on the menu board. We have small groups, which are the sermon base. We have our freedom groups, which is the advanced kind of deliverance and freedom uh, to really deal with deep issues and wounds and hurts in people's life. And then we have uh, a special felt need groups, which is like parenting, get out of debt. Thing. And those are more courses. Those really aren't small groups. Those are courses because someone's really messed up in that area of their life and they need help. And so we'll train you in that, but then we need you back in a small group. So it makes it very easy for people because they know uh, the choices are very simple. It's very clear. It's not overwhelming. Uh, we, we gear it also to men. Uh, sermon-based groups are great for men. Why? Because men don't read and men don't do homework. So if you put a man in a typical group, he's going to look like a failure to everyone in the group because he didn't do his homework that week and he didn't read that week. But if a man goes to a movie on Friday night, they're going to go to work Monday morning and they're going to talk about the movie as like a movie critic. Like they, they are now a professional critic on the movie that they saw. Because they saw it. So if all a man has to do is sit and listen to a message, then they can show up at small group. And now they are as an authority as their wife. They don't feel insecure to their wife. They don't feel insecure to everyone else. Now they can talk and communicate because they actually heard the message. And then we strategically work our message notes where every Sunday the message notes have the small group notes in the worship guide. And so, so I just assume everyone in the church is in a small group. And I'll actually say in the message, I don't, I don't have time to talk about that today. You'll talk about that in your small group this week. Just intentionally building the culture that everybody's in a group. Everybody's in a group. And then it's just built on three sections. There's personal history, questions about their childhood, questions about high school or junior high. Then there's going deeper in the Bible. We're showing them the same message I preached from different places in the Bible. So they're learning to see that the, they're learning to study the Bible. In other words, they're learning to cross-reference the Bible. And then the practical application. How do I actually make this work in my life? And so those are the three second sec- sections of questions. And then the small group leaders take the guide and everyone has the guide during the message. The other thing it does is during the message, I'm going to have a point where I'm boring. To, to somebody at some point, I'm going to be boring and they're going to zone out of me speaking and they're going to read what's in their hand. And so if what's in their hand is the small group guy and they're reading the small group questions and they're saying, so if I can answer that question, now it's easier to get them to be a part of a small group because they're already familiar with what's going to happen. 
And so it's just all, you know, again, we do the weekend service to get people in small groups. We don't do the weekend service to get people to the altar so that I feel, you know, good about myself. We, to me, I don't think I'm successful as a speaker if people aren't joining small groups. I measure my success as a speaker not by how many hands go up, not by how many people come forward, but by how many people take the next step. How many people are getting in small groups? Then there's the Discover Purpose. We do that through the growth track. We run it just like Church of the Highlands. You can download all the manuals on their website for free. They have a share site. You can download all of their resources for free. We run it as is. It's really effective. Uh, The key to the growth track is helping people discover their spiritual gifts. Um, So we have a whole class dedicated to a spiritual gifts assessment and a disc profile and a leadership assessment, which then helps us say, okay, if you have these gifts, here's some great places for you to connect and serve and make a difference. And so it's all about helping them see how God wired them because the, the, the catchphrase is your design determines your destiny. The same God who created you for a purpose is the same God that hardwired you with everything you need to do it. And so if we help you figure out what your gifts are, and they'll set you free. You know, I, I tell them my stories like I used to put so much pressure on myself because I was not more like this person or more like that person, not realizing it wasn't character traits, it was spiritual gifts. Like, I'm not a prayer warrior. Like, when it comes to, like, the gift of intercession, I get, like, the lowest score on the chart. Like, if you're, you know, wanting me to pray all night for you, you're going to die. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) I'm not the one that's going to stay up all night in prayer for you. But I have the gift of faith, so I'll pray in three minutes and really believe God to show up in a a powerful way. But I'm not going to carry all night. And I used to beat myself up. Like, why can't I do all night prayer meetings? And I realized it's not my spiritual gift. It's not because I'm a bad Christian. It's just not my gift. So I share that with people and say, I want you to be free to be who God made you to be. And if you'll, if you'll get connected to how God wired you, you'll love it. You'll, you'll make the biggest difference in your life. And then we move to make a difference, which is our dream team. Now, let me make this absolutely clear. We do not have volunteers. And this is not a semantics game. This is, this is deep, deep into our philosophy. And if you don't understand this, you're going to try to apply a system and it's not going to work for you because you're using it as a means to an end. You cannot use this model as a means to an end. What do I mean? This is not a means to build your church so that you feel successful. This is a means for you to pastor the people in your community. And you have to think right as a pastor. Like if you're using this to build some, you know, area of your life where you need to feel significant you're not going to feel significant unless a thousand people are in your church you're going to get the system wrong and it's it's not going to work for you you've got to go into this thing thinking i don't care how big this church gets i'm here to pastor people and this is how we do it this is what god has given us to do and so we do not have volunteers we have a dream team and it's not a game so i met had coffee with someone not too long ago and they said pastor this church has changed my life it's saved our marriage i got saved here where do you need me and i told him honestly it's like we don't need you anywhere the church is doing really well right now i said but we do want you and we want you to find your place because you need to find your place and if you'll do what god created you to do our whole church will be better as a result we don't need you to do anything for us but you need to do what God made you to do for your sake. And if you'll let us, we'll help you find that. We'll help you find the place you know, that, that you fit and you'll love life and you'll make a difference. And you'll go to bed at night satisfied and wake up in the morning excited because you're living the life you were created to live. 
And that genuinely is how this works. If you get it any other way, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. And then the, then the last thing I want to say is people follow the person before they follow the plan. When you understand dynamics on church growth, Tim Keller wrote an article on church size dynamics. You could probably Google and find it. And he talks about from zero to 200, the church operates like this. And the 200 to 400 operates like this. And 400 to 600 and 600. It was one of the best articles I ever read because it talks about how you as a leader have to evolve, how the staff has to evolve. Zero to 200, it's all about the senior pastor. They like you. They connect with you. You engage them. It's all about the senior pastor. 200 to 500, it's all about your staff. Do you have the staff that can you know, keep people happy and make people happy and, 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 and get to that next level? 500 to about 800, it's all about systems. Can you process people through? 800 and above, it's all about significance. Do you have an environment people can feel significant? People can feel like I'm a part of something big. I'm making a difference with my Life. I'm not just going through. And, and that's what we've seen in our journey. Like the first zero to 200, it was all me. I mean, I was at Panera like eight hours a day having coffee with different people every 30 minutes. I mean, it was, I did everything. Like I had, to, I had, I was the glue of the church until we hit about 200. And then I could hire my first staff member and then strategically brought in team to kind of get to the next season, next level. But there is an X factor on the senior leader that you have to recognize and you have to be the best you you can be. Now, you can develop yourself, but you've got to get comfortable in your own skin. You've got to get comfortable with where God has you in life. Again, we talked about this earlier. God's not fair. He gives some people three talents, some people five talents, some people more, some people less. You have to be okay with where, what God has called you to do. If God's called you to be a pastor of a church of 500, you've got to be okay with that. And you can still grow. But you got to be okay with where you're called to be. Now, don't decide for God where you're called to be either, because he'll surprise you. So I don't want to discourage anyone and think, okay, this is the reason I'm here. And this is no, you can get better and your church can grow without a doubt. But I want you to to let go. Uh, the, The way I've learned that Pastor Chris has really taught me and Pastor me, because this was not me when I got there. When I got there, I was success-driven. I was numbers-oriented uh, in the wrong way. Pastor Chris taught me, is like, we don't have a numerical goal for Highlands. Like, I don't care how big this church is the day I die. I just want it to be bigger than the week before for two reasons. One, because we love people and heaven and hell are real. And it's healthy. And so for me, I had to let go of wanting to pastor a church of this size. And get to the place where I was okay with how God, God determines the growth. I had to get to the place where I was okay with however big God wanted to grow it as long, it was, as long as it was growing. Because we can get real frustrated. Like if we think we're supposed to be at 5,000 and we're at 2,000, we can live frustrated. If we think we're supposed to be 1,000 and we're at 500, we can be very frustrated. And what we'll end up doing is we're thinking about the people we don't have instead of pastoring the people we do have. People can feel that. They can sense that. And so you've got to become, you have to live with the passion inside and a drive inside that you don't let go of. But you've got to get to a place as a senior leader where you can pastor the people you have with all of your heart. And if they feel that, well, well-fed sheep reproduce. Just remember that. Well-fed sheep reproduce. Healthy sheep reproduce. So if you 
help people get healthy and pastor people in a healthy way and, and care for the people that God has given you, they will reproduce and they will grow. But don't have an expectation of where you think it should be. Get vision, get dreams, get desires, get drive, but let God decide how big it's going to be when you retire. And you just focus on the people you have and keep it growing and keep it healthy, if that makes sense. I know that's a lot. We've got about 15 minutes for Q&A. Um, that's the best I have for, for understanding why God decided to do it for us. Again, I don't fully know why God chose to grow our church. I'm grateful, but that's kind of some of the things I've seen. I'm sorry, what city are you in? Carlsbad, the San Diego area. Okay. And how many, what's the percentage of people in the church attending small? Right now we have, our adult attendance is around 900 to 950, give or take. Um, and we have probably six to 700 in small groups. So we're probably 60%. We were around 40% until we made the change. The change moved us up to, and we've only made the change a year and a half ago, so we're still building it into culture. When you made that change, sorry, when you made that change, was it a, did it take, did you take about a year or so to make the change? Or? No, I, I did it in a summer. I did uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life for the What on Earth Am I Here For campaign. I did the campaign in the summer, strategically. And then, because our summers grow because we're in a vacation community. I wouldn't tell other people to do it in the summer, but fall is probably the best time to do it. And then what I said, come fall, I said, you know what? People love that so much. We're just going to keep going with that flow. And we're just going to give you sermon notes every week to do your small group. And so I just said, hey, it works so well. People enjoyed it so much. We're going to keep doing this. I'm really intrigued with the idea of don't do church business on Sundays. Uh, but beyond uh, moving child education, what else did you find that you moved off on Sunday? We look at every announcement, and we really ask ourselves, does this have to be announced on the weekend? Um, so uh, it really comes a lot down to the, just the communication. Some churches make staff announcements on Sunday. Hey, we had to fire the youth pastor. Just want to let you know. Or we just hired a new you know, person in kids' world. You know, like I've been prepped because we're a small church. Uh, you know, and, and so I've been pressured when we had a high-profile staff member leave to have to get up on Sunday and, and announce it to the church. And then Pastor Chris gave me the best piece of advice. He said, listen, people don't love them as much as you think they love them. They really don't. They're there for Jesus, and, and they really, you know, they, they just don't, they're not as attached to them as you think they are. And you don't have to just get up. Because, I mean, again, if someone's marriage is falling apart, they don't need an announcement about how somebody just left. Mm-hmm. So, it, 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 to me, the biggest ones are things like baby dedication, things like, um, unless it works into a message as an illustration, I would say. Like, I did a message on sexual purity for a couple weeks, and then I brought all of our teenagers up that got a purity ring, did it during the message. So, it worked as an illustration. If that makes sense. Yeah. What would you say right now in your growth where uh, like your sweet spot is as a leader or like your main contribution as a person? Like where do you spend 80 plus percent of your time? Yeah, every leader is different. So I'm going to answer it for me, but I want to make it absolutely clear what works for me doesn't work for everyone else. Like 
There are certain things that energize me. Like some people say, when you get to a certain size, you need to hire someone to do that for you. Well, if it brings you energy as a leader, you don't need to hire someone to do it. You need to do it. People say, well, what's my next hire? Well, it's, or what's my first hire as a church planner? It's different. It, it's based on who do you have at the table? Like there, you may have killer people on the dream team doing this, so you don't need to hire for it. Or someone else doesn't, then you do need to hire for it. So every situation is different. So what works, my flow, will not be the same for anyone else's flow. Because there are certain things that energize me. So for me, I like high-level vision. I like teaching. Um, So I spend a lot of my time in vision and teaching. But then I'm also really good with numbers and budgeting. And so I'm heavily involved in our finances. and our I lead our finance team. I'm heavily involved in structuring all of the the finances of our church because that's a gift I have. Some pastors are terrible with money and should not be. They need to know what's going on and be involved, but they should not be leading it. So you have to know what what your strengths are as a leader, because every senior leader like Larry Osborne in our community, he's great with spatial architecture. So they don't hire a spatial architect when they're building buildings. He does it all himself because he's really, really good at it. And so that's not something, and people say, well, you have to let that go as you grow. Well, it gives him life, so he holds on to it. You may have uh, addressed this already, I apologize, I was a little late. Um, but what were, what were some things you guys did to, uh, I guess, help the unchurch culture of where you guys were? So, you know, very unchurch, so what were some things you guys did for people that were opposed to organized religion? Um, I don't know if I've ever had the like the opposition. I, I, I mean, I'm pretty naive about stuff. You know, as a pastor, I just expect if they're there, they're there because they want to learn about Jesus. So I'm not bracing myself for anything with them. Um, I think the biggest thing we do is we explain everything. We do. Like, I don't take anything for granted. I don't use church language or lingo. I, I try to explain everything. You know, like I, I constantly are talking about the books of the Bible and, OK, this is what, you know, the word Matthew means. Like when you see the Matthew three fourteen, you know, Matthew wrote this and here's why he wrote it. And the three is a chapter or 14 is a verse. I just I don't I don't assume people know that. So I do that constantly. And the more I do that, the more people bring their friends because they know I'm going to do it. Todd, do you ever do apologetics? Uh, so Mark Clark came out with a book from God, you know, that kind of vein. Uh, do you ever do that in, in a serious form? I'll, I'll add stuff all the time to messages that, you know, one of the things I've learned in my community, like, I'm a college dropout, and I'm pastoring in a very affluent community, so I have to act like I'm a lot smarter than I am. And so one of the things that I've intentionally done in my messages that have really given me credibility is I find a piece of trivia, a piece of history, a piece of information that people have been in church 30 years and never heard before. And I put it in every single message. And it could be an apologetic thing. It could be a history thing. It could be Hebrew Greek thing. But in every message, I do something that makes me appear smarter than I really am. (laughs) Because I have to. I have to have credibility to pastor people. They have to trust that I know what I'm doing if they're going to let me lead them. Because at the end of the day, the goal is not me being a great preacher and then being inspired by how good of a preacher I am. The goal is to get them in a small group. Now, if then thinking that I'm really, really smart will help me get them into a small group, 
that I'll do things intentionally to make them think I'm really, really smart. Yeah. So that when I teach on small groups, they think, well, this guy obviously knows what he's talking about because that and that and that. So I built a track record of giving them pieces of information that they've never heard before, which tickles the intellect, that allows me then to move them where I need to move them when I need to move them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Follow-up question. Uh, what is one thing with your launch that you look back and you're like, man, we did a great job with that at our launch? And what is one thing that you would say, dude, totally failed that? Yeah. That was awful. We didn't have a traditional launch as a church planner, so I really can't answer that for your context. And my first two years were great. We, we were a transition, so we took over a dying church. We shut it down and replanted simultaneously. And so we didn't have like a big launch Sunday where we'd been shutting down for a while and we sent out mailers and had a big launch Sunday. Okay. We just had a couple years of pain. <laughs> I mean, this was not fun. It was pretty painful. Growth track model. Mm-hmm. The church of the Highlands with Chris. Uh, I mean, they're in the Bible though, right? So a lot of times people are going every single Sunday. Um, do you guys do your growth track every Sunday? Yep. Do you do it three times a month or four times a month? Every Sunday. Okay. Uh, we typically, for a church our size, will average 20 to 30 people a week in growth track, which is about what Highlands averages for their size and their growth track. Um, September was the first month in like three years where we had like one person show up one week, zero persons one week. So I don't know what happened this month. But September's been terrible. <clears throat> but that's the first time it's happened to us. So we're hoping it's just, you know, an off month. When do you do baptisms? We do them currently. Uh, we're, we're evolving how and when we do them. But we typically do them in a main service, but we don't tell people. We just surprise people. We just, you know, have it set up in the building. And then at the end of the message, we say, hey, we're water baptizing today. We have, you know, every excuse taken care of. So you have no excuse to get out of it. Uh, today's your day. Go change. And we're going to do a couple songs of worship while you get changed. And then we're going to baptize you right in service. So that's how we've been doing it. I'm wrestling now. Do I want to do a class to really teach people what it means before we do it, or do we want to keep it spontaneous as an expression? So we're, we're working through that right now. Yes? For your small groups with this sermon series, how is that curriculum created? Is that something you do? Or it's just whatever I'm preaching. I don't, I don't like change my messages for small groups. It's whatever I'm currently doing a series on. Okay. We just write a question guide to go with that message. So it's, so it's like, yeah, I mean, the week one of small groups could be like week five of a series. Okay. Like, I'm not going to sync it. Uh, we haven't synced it perfectly. Okay. But we just write a discussion guide for that week's message. Nice. I mean, it's fine. Yeah, that's how you do it, though. Yeah, uh, what are you doing to, uh, to really kind of drive the culture, the DNA of the culture, uh, just across the board uh, on your staff? Whether pastor, dream, you know, dream team, just how are you doing that? Just uh, practically and logistically, and, uh, and all that. Yeah, I mean, culture is such a hard one to uh, systematize. So it's it's hard to give a clear cut, practical answer. You just have to be the culture. What it really comes down to it's you carry the culture, and you just have to constantly, every time you're with your staff, say, "This is who we are. This is why we are. This is how we behave. This is how we act." This is the word, like, you know, so 
practically, we don't ever use the word need. We've outlawed the word need. Like, so no email has the word need in it. You know, we don't need anything. God supplies our needs. So we have to find a way to rewrite things where we don't use the word need. So I'm very big on words. We never say no problem. I think words probably are the biggest way to create culture. So we never use the phrase no problem. Like if, like if I hear any of the staff, if someone says thank you and they say no problem, they're in big trouble. Yeah. You know, it's, it's never a problem to serve people. Why would you even assume that it would be a problem to serve somebody? No, it's our pleasure to serve you. It's always our pleasure to serve you. And so I'm very, very picky about words. And I think that's probably the biggest thing I, we've personally done for culture. I'm just very, like there's certain words that just set me off. And I'm like, I don't like that phrase. Don't ever say that again. Like that's out of our culture. Uh, because I, I just believe words are the power of life and death. And I think yeah. the words we speak are, are how we create our cultures. I've been to St. Bogotivian, took over a church about two years ago. And uh, once you establish what your systems are going to be, what, you know, what all that stuff, but how long did it take for that DNA and that culture to really set in to where all that work you're putting in the front three years started paying off? Three years. So what happened is we established our system and the church was not growing at all. And it was miserable and it was frustrating. And what many people do is they knee-jerk. They think, okay, obviously this doesn't work. We need to do something else. Well, I knew the system worked because I've seen it work at other churches. For us, the reason it wasn't working had nothing to do with the system. It had to do with the culture. The culture hadn't shifted yet. When the culture finally shifted and the church grew, I thank God we had the system in place. Because it was... See, systems don't build the church. Systems facilitate growth. God's finger builds the church. God either touches it or he doesn't touch it. I think when we create the system, God says, okay, I know that they can disciple people. So let me give you an example Right before we broke 1,000 people, we were running about 800 people. At the beginning of the year, I told our staff, our goal this year is not to break 1,000. Our goal is to create the infrastructure where if God trusts us with 1,000 people, we can pastor them and disciple them. Yeah. That's our goal. And we set apart doing that. We, we made sure that we had everything in place where if God decided to grow the church that year and we crossed the 1,000 line, we had the ability to care for those people. Yeah. And... I think that puts you in a position where God says, okay, I can trust them. I can give them more. I can give them more. Because our focus wasn't on the more. Our focus was on the ability to care for them more. That's great. And I think that's just, it's one of the ways that I've really, being around, if, if, you, if you spend time with Chris Hodges, it's just the way he's wired. Like you think he's all about this big number out there and this big goal out there. He's wired with how do we care for people. How do we create an environment where people can be pastors, people can take next steps, people can move forward in their journey? And he's wired that way, and it's really rubbed off a lot on me. And it's really changed me because I, I really, you know, had a lot of pride and insecurity when I started the church, and all of my motives were wrong. Like God, the first couple of years was God humbling me and breaking me because all of my motives were wrong, and I had to, I had to get humbled. Just a kind of big bang off of the last couple of questions. How do you intentionally uh, focus on leadership development? You see the it, It's every environment you're in, you're in leadership development. Like, so every time you meet with a staff member, every time you meet with a church member, you're always thinking next steps. Like, I'm constantly thinking, what is the next step for this person? What is the next step? So let me give you the best leadership development process. See the potential in the person. 
Say what you see, start a process. Every single person. That's exactly, you, you, you ask God to show you the potential you see in the person. So you can see something in them. Then you tell the person, hey, this is what I see in you. And then you say, let's start a process. That process could be getting a small group. It could be getting growth track. It could be, you have the process. You just got to help them see it, say it, and then start the process. And that's leadership development. And you just do that with every person you come in contact with. I'll tell you a huge key for church members. This is just on the side. Um, Every time you meet with a church member, at the end of the meeting, pray for them. Because you will likely be the only person that did it that week. And they will remember that. I'm telling you, I, I you know, because I don't typically pray at the end of meetings with people, like if I'm out coffee or Panera or wherever, I don't typically say, hey, let me pray for you. I, it's just not, you know, not my personality. I'm just like, you know, I don't want to embarrass them or anything else. One of my overseers, Rob Kettling, told me, do that every single time I started doing it. You can't imagine the difference it makes. Because you're probably the only person that took time to pray for them personally that week. And they remember that, especially that zero to 200 season. Yeah, that's one of the things I did this first couple of years that really helped. Uh, we're about 250, 300 people uh, this Sunday. We're three and a half years old, so we're kind of like in this transition of yeah. breaking the 200 barrier. We're coming out of the plateau, and I'm trying to adjust our systems to stay ahead of the curve. And so I kind of the outward place where I want to do, make a starting point and then a growth track every month, but I don't know if we're ready. You know, how have you... We did it every month. Or we have awkwardly small classes. Um, you know, I, I was one of the early adapters in our in our group with Pastor Chris in the sense that, you know, Chris is, this is a, just a funny story, Chris is a so, key associate of Lane Trance, if you know Lane. So we have this, like, unspoken philosophy. This is our church growth tool is LTL, listen to Lane, whatever Lane says. And... I used to complain to Lane because I was having like one or two people show up at growth track. I was like, should I go to every other month? Should I try to figure out a different model? Uh, I mean, we're on like one or two people, you know, a week. He said, dude, that's awesome. That's 20 people a year getting onto your dream team. Every person that gets on your dream team, that's 10 new people in your church. That's like, that's, that's, you know, so 20 people, that's 200 people at the end of the year. Your church is 200. That doubles your attendance. Yeah. Wow. So, so the thing you drilled into me is easy, obvious, strategic. Is it easy, is it obvious, and is it strategic? If it's every other month, it's not easy, obvious, and strategic. So, and, and remember this, you're the only one that likes a full room. Like, I personally did the growth track for four years. I taught every class for four years as a senior pastor. And... There were days that was one person, two people, three people. Those are the greatest growth tracks we've had because they're some of my top leaders today. Because I had individual time to pour into them. And they loved it because they got me all to themselves. So, so one, to two, one to three people is not a failure at all for your size. Just, just practically, I know we touched a little bit on leadership development and processes, but just kind of practically, what is this, and systemically, what does your leadership pipeline look like? Um, it's the it's what we do. It's the growth track. It's I was going to ask how the track in, in small Dream groups. team, small groups. So, so it goes to small group leader, dream team captain. We, we're just always looking for potential. We're always recruiting. Now, let me put it like this. There are disciples and there are leaders in your church. And you cannot treat disciples as leaders. Yet. Not everyone in your church is called a leader. So you have to have... You have, to, you have to understand that there's two different 
people in your church. Leaders will always rise to the top. You don't have to have a pipeline for them. They will rise to the top. You just have to be spotting them. You have to train people to spot them for you. And then when you spot them, see the potential, say what you see, start a process. So if I see someone that I think could be on staff one day, like i got an intern right now, a youth intern who's just a student in the church. I sat him down one day. I said, listen, this is what I see in you. I said, you've got potential. I think you could be in ministry. Yeah. So I said it to him. I said, let's start a process. Would you consider you know, serving our youth pastor for a season? And now he's an intern. And I fully believe he's going to be on staff. And so, it, so that's how we do it. Leaders rise to the top. You just have to constantly be recruiting. Never stop recruiting. Like Pastor Chris is 60,000 people. He never stops recruiting. Like, like one of their top new campus pastors is a guy two years ago at 21 Days of Prayer. He was walking around the room with his family and kids. You know, it's like two little girls are following. It's like a train. And, and Chris is like, who is this guy? I mean, he's leading his family. So obviously if people follow him. If his kids are following, his wife's following, other people are going to follow him. And he recruited the guy himself at 60,000. He recruited himself. Never stop recruiting. Teach the people around you to recruit, 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 recruit. And then when you spot talent, see the potential, say what you see, start a process. And everyone's process is going to be different. So I think what I wrestled with in the beginning was I need a leadership pipeline. I need a leadership pipeline. And really, I mean, there is no leadership pipeline. I had to get to the point where there is no leadership pipeline. There's discipling people and developing people. And there's a system, but there's also organicness to it. The system is know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. But the organic part is when you see somebody with talent, hey, you could be a small group leader. Like I went up to this big old guy in our church a couple weeks ago at prayer meeting. He was at prayer. Never, he never had this idea once. I went up to him and said, you'd be great with you. Have you ever thought about being an adult leader in our youth ministry? He looked at me like shocked. Never even crossed his mind. The next day he came to prayer with tears. He says, God been speaking to me all day. He's like, I can't believe you saw it. And now, yes, I want to do it. And so it's like you just constantly have to see it, say it, and then start a process. Okay, we're at, we're at we're over time, so I'm going to dismiss it. If you have any other questions, I'll hang out for a few minutes. Good yeah.